Wow. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We're talking again this morning about the crucifixion. And this is maybe one of the most familiar parts of the gospel story uh, to us as believers. And uh, it's the part of the story that the gospel writers actually spend the most time on. Um, As you know, we generally take communion on Communion Sunday, um, the first of the month, before the sermon. But uh, like we did a few weeks ago, this is again a great place for us to spend some time meditating on uh, the sufferings of Jesus and then respond to what we hear following the message. And so we're going to be taking communion uh, at the end of the message today. My prayer for us every time we gather together, and especially when we gather together uh, to take communion and the Lord's Supper, is that it would never be something that we just do, that it would, we would be reminded always of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, and that it would be a, a tender reminder for us of what he did for us on the cross. John Stott is one of the great Christian thinkers of this century. He's been with the Lord about 10 years, um, but one of my favorite Christian authors. And he wrote, and you have it on on your outline, uh, this quote on the top, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turn to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. And so of the four gospel accounts of Christ's crucifixion, Mark's is the shortest. Mark invites us to contemplate Jesus' substitutionary death as divine judgment for our sin. It will humble us because nothing less than the torture and murder of God's own son exposes the seriousness and the depth of our rebellion against God. As we reflect on the meaning of all this, we're moved to grow in our trusting dependence and faithful devotion to God. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. 
Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Excuse me, this is God's word. You know, if we were to pick a theme for chapter 15, the entire chapter, it's that Jesus is mocked and he's insulted and he's jeered at and laughed at and humiliated and shamed. Jesus here is stripped of all his dignity. In the verses that we looked at uh, last week, the soldiers were mocking him. And then in verse 27, we have this ironic statement nailed above the, above him that says the king of the Jews. And you'd think that's generally something you might see over a throne, but not over a cross. In verses 29 and 30, they were, as people were walking by, they were insulting him. And in verses 31 and 32, the religious leaders mock and insult him. And just, that's the theme of the chapter. At the end, you even have the criminals on both sides of him being crucified, mocking him as well. So what does God reveal to us through the cross? Well, number one on your outline, the first thing the cross communicates to us is God's love. Jesus' final road to the cross, uh, he's walking on what's called the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrows. One commentator wrote that Jesus was on the longest route possible so that Proper fear would be given throughout the city as a deterrent to crime. So look again, starting at verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, it's in Africa, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Remember that Jesus had been basically beaten within an inch of his life, and now he's asked to carry the instrument on to of torture on which he would die. It weighed over 100 pounds, probably closer to 200, probably over 200 pounds. Even a healthy man would have a struggle dragging this along, much less someone that had just been beaten to death almost. So as Jesus makes his way up this road of sorrows, a Jew visiting from Cyrene in North Africa 
surely to be there for the Passover, is asked to carry the cross, told, more likely, to carry the cross. Uh, This probably wasn't his way of celebrating the Passover. But we do have evidence, not much, but we do have some evidence that, that this led to his coming to faith in Christ. Well, what's the evidence? Well, uh, Simon's two sons are mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. And there's no reason for Mark to mention them unless they were known to others. And uh, church historians will say that that's probably because uh, Simon came to faith. Simon of Cyrene came to faith and led his family to faith. And they became well-known in the Christian community and to Mark's readers. And then in Romans chapter 16, you've got the reference there. Paul sends greetings to Alexander, and there's a good chance that that Simon's son hasn't been identified as anyone else who's mentioned here in Mark. And in verse 23, at the place of execution, it says they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Jesus refuses because I think he wanted to be, uh, have complete clarity of mind as he was suffering for the sins of, uh, of us on the cross. He wanted to bear the full weight, accept the full weight of that suffering. Remember to the Jews and to the Romans, the cross is a stumbling block. They don't see it as, as uh, they see it as, it's hard for them to believe past the cross. It's crazy to think that the son of God would allow himself to go through all of the suffering that he did, such pain for us. In the Journal of American Medical Association, a number of years ago, it was in the 80s, there, was a, there were a couple of doctors who got together and, and did an article, a medical review of what death on the cross would be like. And they talk about the weight of the body hanging on the nails and the damage to the medial nerves and the respiratory torture as as one's lungs fill up with fluid because really they die from drowning and the cramping. And the, the article goes on and ends by saying death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating. And that word literally excruciating means out of the cross. Ex, out of, and crucis, the cross, excruciating. And that medical report remarkably justifies what C.S. Lewis wrote. You've got the the quote in front of you. He, He wrote this. He said, he creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. In other words, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. 
And so, as you have it on the outline, the cross reveals the love of God as nothing else in the universe could. So we must guard against thinking that somehow it was easier for Jesus to go through the crucifixion because he was God. He was 100% God, but he was 100% man, and he suffered. And his pain was not lessened a bit, and maybe we could even say because of the great distance between man and God, maybe the pain was even heightened because of that, because of the perfect health of his soul. He felt the pain maybe even worse. If Jesus says, I'm a teacher and I'm just gonna point the way to God, then we can say, well, maybe that's true and maybe that's not true. But that's not what Jesus says, that's not what Jesus does. As we've already seen throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus says, I am the unique son of God. I am God the son. I'm the savior of the world. I am the king. And because of what he says, and in light of the crucifixion, the choice for us is not, well, I can say he's a good teacher or not. The choice is an all or nothing choice. We take the narrow road and we follow Jesus or we take the broad road that goes right to hell. You can't just like Jesus. He doesn't give us that option. You have to completely adore him or you despise him, but you can't just like him. But, you know, we are people, we're humans, and we like to keep our options open. That's the way the world thinks. An author that I've enjoyed reading is uh, Flannery O'Connor. She was a brilliant uh, author. And she wrote a short story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And in this short story, there's a criminal called the misfit who's talking with a very religious grandmother. And this grandmother basically tells the misfit, down deep, I know you're a good boy. You just need to talk to Jesus more. And the misfit says, Jesus. And then the misfit says this about Jesus. Jesus threw everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can by hurting someone who's hurt you or doing some meanness to them. No pleasure, just meanness. Some years later, Flannery O'Connor wrote a friend a letter in which she was explaining the dialogue between the grandmother and the misfit. And here's what Flannery O'Connor wrote to her friend about that conversation in her story. The story, she writes, is a duel of sorts between the grandmother and her superficial beliefs and the misfit's more profoundly felt 
involvement with Christ's action, which set the world off balance for him. So here's the deal. The grandmother is like many who call themselves Christians by name only today. She's just nice. She likes Jesus. And the misfit knows that when it comes to Jesus, it's all or nothing. That's how life is thrown off balance. People in general don't want to, they don't want to have to despise Jesus. And they don't want to totally worship him either. That's how life is thrown off balance. They just kind of like him. And most people are happy to just stay on the fence. But the reality is Jesus does throw things off balance. And we hate that. The world hates that anyway. What Jesus claimed was so huge and so exclusive. He claimed that he was God the Son. He claimed exclusively, there is no way to get to the Father except through me. I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so you've got this on your outline. Jesus forces us into an all or nothing decision. That's what we see at the cross when we see the love of God. And with clenched teeth, people say, and even sometimes Christians battle against this when when it comes to giving every area of our lives over to Jesus. Nobody tells me how to live. That's what our nature says. That's what our sin nature says. And there's something in all of our hearts that says, I'm the master of my own fate. We don't like all or nothing decisions. People who are not Christians but are sometimes religious are like Flannery O'Connor's grandmother. And they think, you know, I don't despise Jesus. I don't mock him. I don't hate Jesus. But I also don't need to, I don't feel like I need to center my total life around him. Jesus shows us his love by giving us his all on the cross. And then that's what he asks of us, to give him our all. We may not like it, but there's no way around Jesus' call to all or nothing. And maybe we're not being honest with ourselves. Maybe we don't understand who Jesus really is. And so the first thing the cross communicates to us is God's love. The second thing the cross communicates to us is Jesus' lordship. Jesus' persecutors were not aware of the love that was being declared on the cross. But they were aware of his saying that he was the Lord. He was the king. Look again at verses 25 and 26. It was the third hour or nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. John chapter 19 fills in the details. So it says this in John 19. Pilate 
had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested. Literally, they kept on protesting to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate would not change it, and he answered, what I have written, I have written. And the last phrase in Greek is is in the perfect tense, and so it's literally, what I have written will always remain written. And without knowing it, Pilate was an eternal, proclaiming an eternal truth that Jesus is the king. And we see that throughout the Gospels. During Jesus' infancy, men came from the east and worshipped him as king. At the beginning of the Passion Week, the multitudes cried, Blessed is the king of Israel. Standing before Pilate, Jesus had given witness to his kingdom. John 18, we read about it. And now his royal title is fixed on the cross and the rulers of Israel couldn't get it removed. And ultimately, Jesus is the faithful and true one that will come on a white horse, a sign of royalty. And those still present will see that. In Revelation 19, it says this, his eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Why? Because he's the king of kings. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to singing Handel's Messiah in heaven in perfect pitch and perfect harmony. I can sing it loud, but I can't sing it very well. But what we see, and you've got this on your outline, is that Jesus rules from the cross. You know, it's interesting that just about every time there's a reference to Jesus Rule in the New Testament, there's almost always nearby following it a reference to the cross. Jesus rules from the cross. I know that with many of uh, you, um, like me, you love the hymn. I love the hymn, crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. The crucifixion not only shouts Christ's love as nothing else could, but it shouts his rule, his lordship, that he's king. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He demands our obedience. That's what he wants. If you love me, you show it by being obedient to me, he says. And the song continues, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul. It demands my life. It demands my all. 
And so again, on your outline, Jesus on the cross reveals his love and his lordship. Jesus chose to die so that we could live. He chose to be weak so that we could be strong. And he chose to become poor so that we could become spiritually rich. We want to be free and we want to be happy. Okay, great. Let's, let's define those. Okay? What is happiness? Dictionary definition. Happiness is an emotional state characterized by feelings of joy, satisfaction, contentment, and fulfillment. What is freedom? Again, from the dictionary, freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. So the root to freedom and and happiness, Jesus says very clearly, is obedience. So I I heard about this family that had two boys, eight and 10, and uh, the mom went in to wake the 10-year-old up and said, time to wake up. And the 10-year-old said, you know what? I've decided this is going to be a free day. And she said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, it means that I, I, I get to do everything I want to do and not do anything I don't want to do. And she said, well, you know, that sounds kind of like a good thing we could do as a family. Let's all do that. So 11.30, he comes down for breakfast and says, i ready for breakfast. And she was like, I don't feel like making breakfast. <laughs> so he's like, okay, pour some cereal. He's eating his cereal. He looks outside. His little brother He sees something that his little brother's doing that he doesn't like very much. His little brother is on his bicycle. And he goes out and says to his little brother, get off my bike. And he goes, no, mom said this is a free day. We get to do whatever we want and not do anything we don't want. And I want to ride your bike and I don't want to get off. You can't make me. And so the... 10-year-old plays in the afternoon and and he's getting hungry in the evening and all of a sudden he realizes what might happen and so he goes to his mom and says, okay, mom, I think our day is over. He he was hungry. He didn't want his mom to kind of say, no, I don't feel like making dinner. And so he said, please, will you make dinner? I've got the point of having a free day. Well, so what's the meaning of freedom? You've got this on your outline. Freedom is not the right to do what you want but the power to do what you ought. And how do we get that power? By the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the power to fulfill what God wants us to do. I I love Henrietta Mears, a woman of God who wrote the little book, What the Bible is All About. She said in that book, the Christian life is not difficult to live. It's impossible. And that's why God has given us his Holy Spirit to live within us to give us the strength to do what we don't want to do on our own, what we don't have the power to do on our own. Jesus said in John 8, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You know, we hear that last phrase quoted a lot, the truth will make you free, but they leave out the first clause, which takes away the meaning. You will know the truth. The truth is in Jesus. He said, I am, the, I am the truth. If you want happiness, you want joy and satisfaction and contentment and fulfillment, then you live your life in obedience to the Lord of the cross, to Jesus who died for you. That's why he died. 
The hymn writer, again, hail him as the matchless king through all eternity. And what does love so amazing, so divine demand of us? Again, it's the hymn writer who says it demands my soul. It demands my life. It demands my all. So in the cross, we see God's love. In the cross, we see Jesus' lordship, that he is the king. And then finally, the cross communicates Jesus' atonement. Luke 22, 37 says it like this, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And as as though the crucifixion was not enough, Jesus was, again, the object of all this abuse that was going on. Pick it up again at verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, and and among themselves, they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus was completely misunderstood. And if they misunderstood him, why would we ever think they might not understand us? You've got it on your outline. You, we have to expect people to misunderstand us if we're a Christian, if we're living for Jesus. You know, it's important to understand the fundamental difference of, of a Christ follower and one who is not a Christ follower. An unbeliever in Jesus says, well, if there's a God, then you can get close to him by being a good person. You're saved by what you do. And a genuine believer says, no, I understand the gospel that I'm saved by grace and not by works. And when a non-Christian hears a Christian say that, they immediately think, well, you think you're better than everybody else. Misunderstood. And a Christian says, absolutely not. The gospel says there's nothing I can do for my salvation. All I have to bring to God is nothing and most of us don't have that. We want to bring something. We want, look at all I've done for you, Lord. And of course, a non-believer doesn't understand the gospel yet. Jesus saved me by taking insults without paying back. Jesus saved me by being shamed and misunderstood. And so I'm not afraid to share in his disgrace and be misunderstood by people because I love them and I want them to know Jesus like I know Jesus. And so the cross can and should be our motivation to reach out to those who don't know Jesus. And even when we know that our motives may well be misunderstood. But that's because we walk in the footsteps of the one who was shamed so that we could experience the glory of God. And with that perspective, who cares if something bad happens to us? We can let the mocking of Jesus turn us into people who can handle weakness. 
and who can handle being misunderstood and who have the hope that in the process we will become more like Jesus ourselves. Paul uses the, Paul the apostle writes in Philippians 2 and used Jesus' voluntary sacrifice on the cross as an illustration of the self-denying sacrifice that he wants us to live our lives with. Not to gain salvation, but to please our master. He writes in Philippians 2, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look only for, out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. I think it's fair to say that death by crucifixion is the most degrading kind of death that one could experience. You know, polite Roman society even considered a cross an obscenity. And it says in Philippians 2.8, in another translation, Jesus humbled himself in obedience, even death on a cross. Can there be a deeper way to live in humble obedience than what Jesus did by dying on the cross? And in humility, he died so that we can be saved from our sin. You know, there were two co-workers, uh, <clears throat> Jermaine Washington and Michelle Stevens. We're friends, just, just friends. They used to hang out at lunch sometimes, and as co-workers, they'd have lunch together. Jermaine knew that Michelle was struggling at one point physically, but didn't realize how bad it was until one day her friend Michelle just broke down and wept and said that um, the only way she was alive was because of kidney dialysis and she was suffering blackouts and fatigue and severe joint pain. And even though they were just friends, it, it, it really hurt Washington. He couldn't imagine watching his friend die. So he decided to give her his kidney. And after that, after they were both back at work, they continued meeting more regularly, now two or three times a month, to have what they called a gratitude lunch, where they just got together and were thankful for the health that they had. And you know what? Um, now's the time to take in your hand the, the cup and the wafer and peel that top part back and take that wafer that represents Jesus' body in your hand. Because we want to get together right now and just thank God. We want to have a gratitude meal together. Thank Jesus for what he did for us dying on the cross. This represented Jesus' body. And so, Father, you gave your son to die in our place that we might live. 
And so we eat this bread in remembrance of you. Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's do it in remembrance of him. And so, Lord, we eat this with great gratitude. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus, your son, that cleanses us from all sin. You said, Lord, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus to his disciples said, drink this. Let's drink it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help the knowledge of what your son went through change us so that we know that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So that when we're weak, we're strong because of your strength, because of your Holy Spirit. Help us to know that that we're going to be misunderstood, but that's all right because we trust in you, because we are a child of the King. And if there's someone here this morning, Father, who has realized for the first time that their, their faith has been in what they do and not in what Jesus has already accomplished for them on the cross, that they would receive you by faith right now, that they would just open up their hearts to you, And Father, help us all to be like Jesus. We want to be like him because we love what he did for us. We love him. We want to be all in. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.